Friends, blessed are you. As you gather this morning around the word of our Savior, the living God, amen. I mentioned last week that this breakneck pace we'd been taking through Jesus' life in our Sunday morning Bible readings would start to slow down this week. As I noted, over the last month, we've seen Jesus grow from the baby at Christmas to the 30-year-old preacher walking around the Sea of Galilee. It was quite a, quite a pace we set there. But now we're going to slow down. And for the next three weeks, we're going to consider one of Jesus' best-known sermons, the Sermon on the Mount. It spans Matthew's chapters uh, 5, 6, and 7 in his Gospel. And it's the first extended account we have in Matthew's Gospel of Jesus' teaching. That's something interesting to note here. Until now, we've only heard isolated words and short conversations which Jesus had. But the Sermon on the Mount is a turning point. Uh, Here, Jesus publicly and thoroughly fleshes out his teachings for his followers. We're going to break chapter 5 into three parts in this three-week series and slowly talk through what Jesus teaches here. So putting together this series, I thought a good way to to frame our consideration of Jesus' words is through the lens of culture shock. I know we've all experienced this at some point. It's the feeling of strangeness and disorientation that someone who's moving into a new environment experiences. Changing grade schools as a kid can produce a kind of culture shock. We feel culture shock when we begin a new job and acclimate to our new workplace. But most often, right, that phrase culture shock we use to describe the experience of moving from one country to another. The Bible often uses the metaphor of a a nation or a kingdom to describe the Christian church. Not any one particular Christian church, to be clear, Grace of God on Deer Park Avenue is not the kingdom of God. What scripture teaches is that where there is a church which shares God's law and gospel message, there the Christian church is present. God's kingdom is present. And the people gathered around that message then are gathered in the kingdom of God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus describes for us life in that kingdom. And he makes clear there are cultural differences between his kingdom and the world outside. Whether you're a new citizen of the kingdom of the church, whether you're just visiting it, you've got a tourist visa for the moment, whether you've been in it your whole life, long as you can remember, it's good for us to be reminded of these differences. Because we spend so much of our lives interacting with, walking around in the world outside Jesus' kingdom. It's good for us to consider the Sermon on the Mount, to see those differences with fresh eyes. We'll do just that over the next three weeks. Today's text focuses us on this fact. Status works differently here. Every culture handles status differently. I learned something about status and respect in Korean recently. I met an older Korean man for the first time, and to be properly respectful, I greeted him with this particular word, Anyang Haseo. This is not the most formal greeting possible in Korean, but it was appropriate for me as a late 20s man to address an older man this way, and roughly it comes out something like, hello, sir. Culturally, there's a certain status difference attached simply to the fact 
that he is my elder. I couldn't just say, hey, what's up? Status and the way it's handled can be a, a particularly troubling thing in culture shock. You don't know how to address people, who to address, who should you shake hands with, whom should you politely bow to. In God's kingdom, there are also certain status markers. Jesus says in our text eight times that in his kingdom, some people are blessed. They are favored by God. There's a certain status attached to them. We call this section of Jesus' gospel, which you heard earlier, the Beatitudes. And that word just means a pronouncement of blessing. To say that someone or something is blessed is to speak a Beatitude. Let's look at each of the Beatitudes this morning. We're going to look at all eight and see how status works here in this kingdom. The first Beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. When we meet someone for the first time, we can make good guesses about their economic status by the car they drive, the clothes they wear. Maybe we can even Zillow their address. Then we can divide people up, rich, poor, we can cut that even finer, right? Middle class, lower middle class, higher middle class. These are visible markers on which we're making these determinations of status. Jesus talks about something invisible to us here. I cannot see, looking at someone on the street, whether they are poor in spirit. And so right off the bat, we ought to understand something about the Beatitudes, about the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. This discourse is not given by Jesus so that we can evaluate others. The Beatitudes help us evaluate our own lives. I cannot look at someone else out on the street and find out about their poorness of spirit. I can see where they live. I can see the job they might have, the car they might drive, the kinds of clothes they wear. The only person whose poorness in spirit I can evaluate is my own. So I ask myself, am I poor in spirit? Am I puffed up and prideful when I look at my heart? Am I quickly angered when my status is challenged? Do I think that I am someone self-made, that I deserve what I have? If we are prideful and puffed up, God shows us that. He puts people in our way in life who pop our bubbles, who provoke us to anger, who put our pride on ugly display. He humbles us. He shows us that we are spiritually poor, and in that humbling, he promises, you are blessed. It is a good and gracious thing God does when he humbles us. Through it, we learn to love others, to not take ourselves so seriously, to recognize that we are clay jars into which he is pleased to place treasure. He gives his kingdom to humbled, poor in spirit people. The second of the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn. Still thinking about status. What status do we give mourners in our culture? Well, we respect them. We give gold star families particular honor because their family made such a sacrifice. Many employers offer bereavement leave when someone is mourning. They want to honor that time. But Jesus does not say that the status that mourners in his kingdom possess is that of honor. He uses a different word, right? Blessed are those who mourn. They will be not honored, comforted. Outside Jesus' kingdom, we can't really be comforted when we mourn. Honoring those who mourn is a good thing. But when the funeral is over and everyone else has gone home and now there's an empty bed down the hall where an eight-year-old used to sleep, 
Honor means nothing. In Jesus' kingdom, God blesses mourners with comfort, promise, life after death, resurrection. The third, blessed are the meek. Meek, not that common a word in our vocabulary, is it? But it's a good word. It's a complex word. There's a lot of things bundled up in this simple little word, meek. Gentle, respectful, kind, patient, willing to be overruled. Meekness is one thing that we can see in others, unlike some of these other characteristics, but when meekness is seen in the world, it's not praised. What does the world call this? Stupidity, foolishness, weakness. Whoever got anywhere by being meek, right? Facebook became dominant because Mark Zuckerberg had his very simple, unmeek motto, move fast and break things. Those who desire worldly prominence will have a hard time swallowing this beatitude. It's not that Christians can't have worldly prominence. The congregation in Corinth, to whom our New Testament reading was written, had some members of prominence. Sosthenes and Crispus were among them. They led the synagogue. Erastus was the director of public works in the city administration. Kings, queens, emperors throughout history have belonged to the church, to Jesus' kingdom. But the promise Jesus makes to his meek people is so much bigger than all that worldly prominence. He says, the meek will inherit the earth. No matter how prominent or influential one may become in this life, they'll never reach that. Jesus says elsewhere in Scripture that we can in this life, if we choose to, we can hoard wealth, play cutthroat, break the rules, stand to gain the world, but we'll lose our souls in the process. In the words of Martin Luther, Christ here rebukes lunatics who claim that as Christians they are entitled to roar and bluster and violently defend their property. Now, meekness. As C.S. Lewis wrote, we can aim at heaven and we'll get earth thrown in. If we aim at earth, we'll get neither. The fourth, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now Jesus is driving deeper at the same point as he made in this last beatitude. What animates us? What motivating factors are behind our decisions? This beatitude calls us to look in the mirror. Are we hungry for worldly status? Do we thirst for fame, power, influence? If so, watch, we'll make choices that reflect that. If we want to know what we hunger after, we can look at the choices that we make, too. And we'll figure out what it was that we were looking for. The other option is that we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Is righteousness, that is the status of innocent, innocence before God, is it that for which we hunger and thirst? Is it that which motivates our decisions? Then we'll make choices that reflect that. And luckily for us, righteousness is not something which we have to seek out. God tells us in his word, where it is that we find his righteousness brought to us through his word itself. That's why we gather to hear it, to learn it, to take it to heart. He tells us that it's brought to us in baptism as we're washed clean of our sins and made his children through Christ. It's brought to us in the supper as Jesus hands over his body, his blood shed on his cross for the forgiveness of our sins to the comfort poor sinners who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Here, we are filled, we are satisfied. 
The fifth beatitude, blessed are the merciful. Mercy, the quality of withholding punishment when one has the right to punish. The church father Gregory the Great said of this verse, true justice shows mercy, but false justice shows indignation. Mercy is a quality born from our knowledge of our own sin. If our own sins look small, if we think we're pretty good, not perfect, but all right, the sins of others cause us to become furious and indignant and hateful. Watch out! St. James says, judgment without mercy will be shown to the unmerciful. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus commands his disciples, be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. Right? Mercy is not an ideal to which the Christian is recommended. It's a command. The arrogant person who despises mercy, thinking that he doesn't need it, has sinned against the command to be merciful. He will need more mercy than anyone. Yet God is indeed so merciful that he can and will show mercy to us. None of us has been merciful as we ought to be. We have forgiven, yeah, sure, but we've also held grudges. We have twisted the knife into someone who has wronged us, right, wanting them to really feel bad about what they did. We do not deserve mercy. But that's the point. Mercy is undeserved. God, who is perfect mercy and perfect justice, gave his one and only Son for you. The sixth beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart. Uh, like poor in spirit, pure in heart, right? It's, it, there's an idea there, but it's hard for us to put our finger quite on what's being said. Martin Luther gave a simple explanation. He said that the person pure in heart is the one who replaces all their own ideas, all their conceits, all their vain opinions with the word of God. We get rid of all the things we invent, which we think make us pleasing in the sight of God. We instead cling to Christ and his word by faith. So Luther illustrates this. He talks about the monks in his time, 500 years ago, who taught that by fasting, by offering lengthy prayers, by withdrawing from this world, they became more acceptable in God's eyes. No, nonsense, Luther said. Instead, the laborer who came home blackened and filthy, who ate the meal that he needed to eat and simply said the Lord's Prayer before falling fast asleep on his pillow. This is the one who is pure in heart, Luther said, without all these monkish fasts and prayers. Why? Because the monk, with all his rituals, was never actually sure in his heart that he had come closer to his God. But the laborer slept on his pillow knowing that his father had heard him. And thus the pure in heart see God. The seventh, blessed are the peacemakers. Vladimir Putin began his war in Ukraine nearly a year ago, portraying it as a, a battle of good and evil. He portrays it as a, a Christian crusade against demonic liberalism. And he quotes the Bible as he sends off Russian soldiers. He tells them from 1 John that a man has no greater love than that he lay down his life for his friends. He's a pimp. He prostitutes the word of God for his own ends. And yet Putin has defenders in some corners of American Christianity. People who see wokeness and liberalism as threats apparently more dire than blasphemy committed as innocents die in a so-called Christian crusade. These are the same kind of Christians, you may see them on social media, who mutter darkly about a new civil war. They show up to protest pride rallies with assault rifles. They are fools and pagans. 
who think that the answer to sin, and these things are sin, but these fools think that sin's answer is found in an ammo box. No. Jesus' apostle Paul tells us that the kingdom of God struggles not against flesh and blood, and its war cannot be fought with weapons of flesh and blood. The children of God are peacemakers, Jesus says here. Not only do we seek to forestall war and unrest, we give help and counsel on the side of peace wherever we can, in personal relationships, in workplaces and schools, in society, particularly in the church. The eighth beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the verse that follows is connected. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Living out the Beatitudes will not win you worldly status. Being a peacemaker at all times will anger people. Your merciful attitude will inflame those who want to hastily cast stones. Your meekness may end in your being cheated, taken advantage of. Has Christ promised otherwise? He has not. Rather, he promises that because you are God's child, your Father in heaven will provide for you. Your hairs are numbered by the one who created the stars. Be of good cheer, little flock. Status works differently here. Your creator treasures you, meek and poor and persecuted, though you may be. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Amen.